Thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 120, Victory in the East. Last time, Franco was readying to launch his attack on Barcelona on December 10, 1938, and the capture of the Republican government to end the war. But then heavy rains came, which would negate the aerial attacks of his German and Italian pilots. And this time, Franco wasn't rushing in, half-cocked, as he had before. No, this time was to be perfect, and this time it would be the end of Prime Minister Negrin and his communist supporters. On that same day, December 10th, Negrin outlined for his cabinet his unified National Front Party, which would look little different than Franco's nationalist platform. And as the communists were expecting to leave soon, it seemed that the Spanish people would be the losers, no matter which side won. By the beginning of December, Franco's army of the maneuver had redeployed itself along the Ebro and Segre rivers. But again, as the rains came in the second week of December, this gave the nationalist and fascist pilots more time to ready themselves. Just before hostilities started across the Ebro, some 400 new Spanish pilots had left flying school and were put into Fiat squadrons. The better pilots received handed over Messerschmitt 109Bs, fighters the Germans were giving up as they were receiving 109Es. And the nationalist pilots would continue to benefit from the Luftwaffe developing better and faster planes. A third group of Spaniards received HE-112s as they had been bested by the Messerschmitts in comparison trials. The Italians tried to keep pace by rushing their Fiat G-50 monoplanes for battle testing. However, the aircraft would not come in time. Mussolini's newest plane would have to wait for the next war. Facing this air power, the Republic had seven fighter squadrons of some 106 aircraft, and of those, most of those planes were the locally made Moscas, not Russian Chattos. Even worse, little to no aircraft supplies were getting through the fascist blockade, or France, for that matter. To be sure, the Republic's ground forces were in equally precarious shape. Of the 220,000 soldiers, only some 140,000 were organized into brigades, and many of them had no rifles. Of their 250 total artillery pieces, at least half were non-operational, again, due to spare parts. Of their 40 tanks, less than half were ready for battle. And while the Nationalist ground forces were overwhelming in their numbers, they were still arranged smartly. Prudence demanded it. Just above the bend in the Ebro, where the recent Republican counterattack occurred, along the Segre River, was stationed the new Army Corps of Ugel, led by Grandes, as well as the Army Corps of Mastrazgo, led by Valino, and the Army Corps of Aragon, led by Moscado. Just below these forces were the Segre and Ebro met, the Italians, some 55,000 of them, under the command of General Gambera, were stationed along with General Solchanka's Army Corps of the Navarre. Below them, along the Ebro, to the sea, was Yagwe's Army Corps of Morocco. The stage was set. 
Not that it mattered, but the Vatican tried to step in and implored for a Christmas truce. Despite this, the Nationalists launched their attack on December 23rd. The Italians, along with the Navarre Corps, crossed over the Ebro and made for Mont Blanc and Vals, some 45 miles or 72 kilometers to the northeast of their starting point. Theoretically, the 56th Division of the 12th Corps were standing in their way, and the 56th was one of the better armed formations, as others had been cannibalized to make this so. Not that it mattered, as the men of the 56th pulled back, making sure to stay ahead of their would-be attackers, who tried to keep up with them. As this played out, the aggressors were able to push forward some 16 kilometers, or 10 miles, on the first day. Not a propitious beginning for the Republicans. The next day, the Italians and the Navarre Corps took the city of Mayals, but then were stopped from any going further on Christmas Day by the 5th and 25th Corps, who did not run away. December 3rd also saw a large attack on the Republicans' far right flank. Just below Tremp, along the Noguera Palisade River, the Corps of Mastrasgo and of Ugel, after an intense artillery bombardment, crossed over and headed southeast in the direction of Artesa de Sergre and Cervera, some 30 kilometers or 18 and a half miles away. However, Unlike the Italians, who seemed to have fought better here than in times past, the men of Mastrasgo and Ugel were soon held up by the 26th Division. Of course, these men realized that if they gave way completely, then all their comrades to their southeast could be cut off if they needed to retreat to France. This stalemate went on for five days, with both sides losing men, but never slacking in their attempts. Knowing how Caprice Franco was, General Vigon moved his stalled main attack 30 kilometers downriver. Transferring the stuck men of the Mastrasgo Corps to Balaguer, but leaving the units of Ugel to keep the enemy pinned down, the Aragon Corps joined in on this new attack along with three anti-air detachments of the Condor Legion. Their 88mm and various other Krupp artillery pieces would come in handy. Further, on the Nationalist far right flank, along the Ebro, the floodwaters there were holding up Yagwe and his men. To be sure, the biggest threat to the entire defensive structure was where the Italians and Navarres had pushed across and caused the defenders to flee before them. However, then General Lister stepped in and used the 11th Division to slow down the enemy's advance near Granadella. This was on Christmas Day, and by this third day of the offensive, both sides were tired. As the Nationalist ground assault began to slow down, that wasn't the situation in the air. On Christmas Eve, an entire squadron of Republican Natashas were shot out of the sky by their faster and better equipped counterparts. In the next seven days, another 35 Republican aircraft would be gone. By then, only a few partial squadrons could still take to the air. The church bells of the New Year would be the death knell of the Spanish Republic. 
On January 3, 1939, Solchanka's Carlist fighters reached Borjas Blancas, some 50 kilometers or 31 miles behind the main defensive line. On that same day, on the far left flank of the Nationalists, the Mastrazgo Corps, reinforced by the Aragon Corps and the artillery of the Condor Legion, pushed up from the southwest and took the town of Artesa. As stated, the Nationalists had been trying to approach the town from the northwest, but they were stymied by the stalwart 26th Division. Either way, the town was taken and another hole existed in the Republican line, which the Nationalists added onto as Yagawe's men on the far right flank had finally been able to cross the cumbersome Ebro near Asco and began to drive northeast to the coast. And the momentum stayed with the Nationalists for a while. The men of the Yugel and Mestrazgo widened their hold on the east side of the Segre, while the Aragon Corps continued to push in from Lerida and to help watch the left flank of the Italians as they took Borges Blancas on January 5th. But as the Republicans knew, it was now or never. So the old trick of a diversionary attack was launched 220 kilometers or 136 miles southwest of Madrid by the 22nd Corps. And it was a solid opening move as a section of some 8 kilometers wide was breached. The next day, as the 22nd continued pushing southwest, a second defensive line was fractured. This should have worried Franco, but before he could overreact as he had done in the past, the Republicans dashed themselves against a third line of defense of some 80,000 men and 100 large guns. The Republicans had been trying to take Penaroya, but never made it. And now the Civil War of Spain became a list of Republican cities that fell, one after the other. On January 6th, General Solchaca's men took Vinaixa on the road to Mont Blanc. On January 9th, just left of center of the Nationalist attack line, the Aragon Corps joined up with the Italians at Moralusa. This town was due west of Barcelona, near the former front line. Trying to stand in their way was the 5th and 15th Corps, but the Germans above made short work of them. In fact, the Germans were flying so many sorties that Richtofen threatened to pull back his pilots if they were going to do all the work. After all, they were trying to work out intricate ground-air coordination attacks, while the Spaniards were ruining this by sitting back or pretending they couldn't break through a line. Back to the Italians and Solchaca's men, their thrust could be considered the northern area of operations. And as such, all the Republicans to their southeast were threatened with being cut off from France. Adding to the growing terror, no city of consequence of Catalonia was not being bombed by this time. On January 12th, Montblanc fell to the surging nationalists. That same day, another ten Republican fighters were obliterated while on the ground. The Republic's air force was close to non-existing. Two days later, January 14th, the city of Valls fell, and it was on the road to the major port city of Tarragona, which was already 
being hammered from above by the Condor Legion. To be sure, the Republicans still held territory south of Tarragona, but then the Moroccan forces completed a 50-kilometer forced march north, it wasn't their first, and joined up with the Navarre troops to surround the city. With such a maneuver, any Republican forces south of the port city had to count themselves as cut off, or now, in enemy territory. On that same day, the men of the Aragon and Mestrasco Corps occupied Severa, back to the northwest, a third of the way inside Catalonia. By now, Franco's forces had captured some 23,000 prisoners, killed more than 5,000, and had wounded another 40,000. Considering only some 140,000 defending troops were at least partially organized and armed, this had to be seen as the true end of the Republic's hopes of remaining independent of the Nationalists. And Franco wasn't done. This had been the end he had been working for. This time, there would be no let-up. Catalonia would come under his heel. And now, for the saddest, most pathetic part of the Battle of Catalonia. For all of the bravado, the call-ups, the resolute messages coming from Negrin, no one thought to surround Barcelona with trenches. Once the defenders stopped fighting or were pushed aside, there was no physical barrier between the insurgents and the capital. As was noted when Tarragona fell, there was not even a kilometer of trenches around the main city. As this was the case, the only possibility left was to call up more fighters. So the class of 92 and the future class of 42 were called up on January 9th. But this would not be enough. By now the defenders were outnumbered 6 to 1. So then came the mobilization issued for men and women between the ages of 17 and 55, which made little difference, as there was no weapons to give them. As the saying goes, a drowning man will grab for anything, even the tip of a sword. Thus, if those around Barcelona were truly trapped with no other options, they probably would have fought on to the end. But they did not, because they did not have to, for the way to France was still open. On January 22nd, General Rojo had the unpleasant task of telling Negrin there was no longer a front to this war. Negrin responded by telling everyone in the government to go north and make for the cities of Garona and Figueras, even closer to the French border. Meanwhile, the men of Solchaca, of Yagüe, of Grandes, of Valino, of Gambera, were coming ever closer to Barcelona and the coast. As the governmental personnel and civilians left, thousands of documents were set ablaze. This led to several fires that spread throughout the city, which added to the chaos. Even seriously wounded people crawled out of the hospital to make their way north. By January 26, 1939, nationalist troops started entering Barcelona. Yagüe's men were given five days to steal whatever they wanted, with no regard to if the owners were supporters of Franco or not, but had kept their nationalist views 
to themselves. Of course, random killings came with the looting, and some 10,000 people were murdered within the first five days. The Italian troops were horrified by this, but Mussolini's orders were that anyone found to have fought with the Republicans was to be shot on the spot. Il Duce justified this by saying, because dead men tell no tales. The Italians did as they were ordered. Now that the Republican capital had been taken, it was time for the revisionists. Not that they were always on the same page. General Davila, commander of the troops that occupied Barcelona, published a statement that read, in part, The city of Barcelona and other liberated territory of the Catalan provinces within the sovereignty of the Spanish state have just been reintegrated. That the Catalan provinces had the honor of being governed on an equal footing with their counterparts in the rest of Spain. However, General Arenas, the Undersecretary of Public Order, put his own decree out that made it clear to the locals that they had been beaten by a conquering army. Then again, the man in charge of propaganda prepared his own leaflets, which were written in Catalan. But General Arenas, when he heard of this, had the papers destroyed. Spanish was the only language acceptable for this new Spain. Catalan was not to be tolerated. General Arenas justified this by saying, Barcelona is a city which has sinned greatly, that altars would be erected on every street and masses said continually. Furthermore, such harsh measures were needed, as Republican Spain had been Bolshevized and thus had to be cleansed. Like Nationalist China of 1937, Spain's main news outlet was its newspapers, not radio, so the publications of Barcelona were shut down and then reopened with new names and a new mission. But even here, the nationalists could not align their perceptions of this new reality. The Oja Oficial de Barcelona stated that Barcelona was liberated, but another paper changed its motto to the daily paper in service of Spain and Generalissimo Franco. But all stressed that Spanish was to be spoken. If you are Spanish, speak Spanish, speak the language of the empire. The army joined hands with the church and burned books, forbidden by the clergy. On a lighter note, on January 28th, nationalist troops paraded through Barcelona. The Italians were not allowed to participate, which angered Mussolini, but it seemed that Franco was taking a page from Hitler's book and thinking less of Il Duce as time went by. Besides, Franco was trying to bring his country together. The last thing he needed was to have foreigners parading as conquerors. Yet the Italian leader did not understand this. The Germans, meanwhile, found the entire episode amusing. To be sure, fighting was still going on. Some Republican units were fighting, retreating, and then ambushing when they could. Others were simply staying together for mutual protection. Either way, all were heading north, making for the French border. Just kilometers from that border, Prime Minister Negrin was trying to carry on with the business of running the government. 
In Figueras, he held a meeting of the Cortes and stated that he was ready to start peace negotiations, but had conditions. This was meaningless to Franco, who would not have gone along with any of those conditions, because he didn't have to. A few kilometers south of Negrin's position, nationalist troops entered Genera. Their pace was slowed down by blown bridges and ever-increasing number of prisoners. As for the bridges, that was mostly caused by the doing of the Condor Legion. After all, they were there to practice their skills, certainly as this war was all but over. Another chance to hone their strafing skills came as the people fled along the roads or in trains. As Richtofen reported back to Berlin, the pilots are gradually getting a taste for it. Another 15 Republican fighters were shot down, trying to make their way to Madrid. As the Republic continued to collapse, the last of the men of the International Brigades were waiting to leave. When they heard of the defeat of Barcelona, some thousands of them offered to stay and fight. But Negrin could not agree, as it would anger Franco even more. So the foreigners went to the Spanish communists, who agreed and armed the men. Some 5,000 of them were loaded onto a train and made their way to Barcelona. Amazingly, they made it as far as Grenolaires, some 15 kilometers north of the capital, before the train ran into an Italian reconnaissance unit. The Italians there were either killed or captured. Soon a column of another Italians arrived. The experienced foreigners quickly took out the first and last vehicle of the enemy convoy. The Italians were now trapped. Soon enemy fighters were overhead, strafing the foreign brigades, and they were eventually come upon by an even stronger Italian force. But by then, many of those trapped Italian troops from the column had already been killed. The foreigners then spent the next week engaged in a fighting retreat until they crossed the border. Despite the nationalist success, the ground troops were getting tired. As such, they slowed their pace, allowing more Catalonians, civil, military, and governmental, to reach the French border. But also, Franco changed his focus and told his generals and German and Italian allies to make sure any Republican troops who still wanted to resist could not make their way back to Madrid. That would be dealt with soon enough, and Franco did not want to see the area reinforced. The German and Italian pilots responded to this by raiding the last other Republican airfields around Barcelona and Madrid. President Azania and Negrin crossed the border on February 5th. They were traveling with Gural, Compagnies, and Aguera. Azania would make his way to the Spanish embassy in Paris. Also, but ironically, the French were not prepared for the flow of refugees. The only thing Paris had sent to the border were soldiers, which is perhaps why Franco had been nervous about an intervention, though he was constantly told by Rome and Berlin that the Republic would not be giving them any trouble. Panicking, the French border was closed, but when some 200,000 refugees were protesting to get in, Paris had no choice but to relent on January 28th, 
however, with conditions. The French government made it clear that soldiers and men of military age would not be allowed to cross over. Still, some 200,000 people went north. In a relatively short time, that number would reach half a million. As for the men held back, thousands of them went into the mountains and crossed over without permission. By February 3rd, some of Franco's troops were within 50 kilometers of the border. Any chance of those Republican troops still fighting, of holding them back, were gone. The problem of nationalist troops now belonged to France. Those on the right in France, of the French press, the politicians, wanted nothing more to do with the refugees. France had already been caring for almost 500,000 people from various far-right nations and didn't want to foot the bill anymore. But even they did not have an answer to the question, how do you keep out Republican troops who wanted to enter and were armed? As for the pilots of the Condor Legion, they had their own problems. The closer they flew to the border, the more white flags they saw, raised in surrender. And yet, by the first week of February, the Germans were being shot at, in the form of warning shots from French ground units. The German and Italian pilots had done much to make Franco's victory possible, but it seemed their time serving the nationalist leader was over. Thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 121, Spain Goes Dark. Paris quickly figured out that Republican troops were pouring into France by any means necessary. As such, on February 5th, the word went out that what was left over of the People's Army were welcome. Paris felt bad enough over the Munich affair and could not deal with this guilt as well. The men who had fought for the Republic crossed over, stacked their arms before continuing their journey. And yet, the war was not over. There were the Republican sections in central Spain, as well as in the South. So the question was, should the Republic begin talks with Franco? Should they fight on? Would the European democracies finally come to their aid, seeing what was about to happen to another democratic country? By February 9th, nationalist troops had occupied Catalonia. The Spanish government met in Toulouse to discuss their next step. By then, Negrin had heard from General Miaja, now in charge of all the military, and he wanted permission to begin talking to the enemy about ending the war. Negrin did not respond either way. Why? By this time, it's easy to argue that the Prime Minister was losing touch with reality, a reality he did not like. His attitude would quickly become more extreme, and he would go on to threaten to shoot anyone who disagreed with him. At the same time, while he was preaching the fight should go on, behind the scenes he was warning friends and attempting to make a life for himself post-Civil War Spain. But Franco would show himself to be a man of absolutes. 
Either way, the left-leaning but non-communist leaders within Spain had had enough of Negrin. His speeches aroused no one, except the communists, and they ruled him as much as he ruled them. No, those of the left knew it was time to negotiate, but would not just roll over for Franco, which meant a new government was needed, one that had no past in the war and could talk to Franco evenly. Then it was discovered that Negrin was telling select persons to evacuate Madrid. But again, why? Didn't he keep saying the war, the struggle for freedom, and his government should go on? What little trust Negrin had amongst his colleagues was now gone. But it only got worse for him. Practically at the same time the Negrin government was deciding what their next step would be, the Comintern agent Stefanov spoke to the Spanish Communist Party in Madrid. He told them to forget Negrin or anyone else of that ilk. What free Spain needed was a revolutionary democratic dictatorship, whatever that was, and its only aim would be to win the war. No more politics, no more grandstanding. Give the fighters what they needed and focus on the essentials. The communists of Madrid agreed with this on February 11th. So now it seems that what remained of Free Spain had at least three possible governments, and there would be another. But they did not trust each other, and none of the politicians had the military resources to stand up to Franco either way. As for the non-communist soldiers and the politicians that remained in Madrid, they couldn't care less for any more speeches of resistance. The people wanted this war over. Franco had won, so let him rule. They just wanted their lives back, and as such, saw the communists as the only barrier to peace. As for Britain, in the form of Prime Minister Chamberlain, he only wanted peace as well but on his terms. On February 7th, just before everyone in Spain had decided that they would be a better ruler than Negrin, the British Prime Minister had the British Consul on Mallorca, Alan Hilgarth, work with the Nationalists and arrange the island's surrender. Franco got what he wanted, but so did Chamberlain. There would be no Italian presence there. The Mediterranean would still be a British lake. It was only a matter of time before Chamberlain would go on to recognize Franco as Spain's new leader, which would cause President Azaña to resign, and his replacement would not go back to Spain. On February 12th, just days after Mallorca surrendered, Negrin, who had been in Alicante on Spain's southeastern coast, flew to Madrid. There he tried to reinvigorate the remaining council of ministers of his idea of a popular front, which would practically make him a dictator. He ended his speech with, Either we all save ourselves, or we all sink in extermination and dishonor. The room was not moved. Ironically, on that same day, Franco delivered his Law of Political Responsibilities, that stated anyone who had resisted the Nationalist Party's attempt to save Spain from corruption, actively or passively, was a criminal and would be treated as such. This pretty much encompassed everyone not in the Nationalist Party. 
So if Negrin or the communist or the left-leaning non-communist continued to fight, they could expect no mercy if they went down in defeat. And that do-or-die scenario was exactly what Negrin was heading for, whether he knew it or not. With Negrin saying his piece, he settled down, but not in Madrid or in Valencia in the south, but near Alicante, further south. There he was guarded by 300 communist commandos, so could keep up the self-delusion that he was still in charge of a government. To make matters worse, one minute he would send a message to Madrid, exhorting central Spain to fight on. The next, he would be planning mass evacuations. This Negrin-generated confusion caused gridlock in Madrid, as the officials there were not sure which way to turn, not that it made much difference. The people of Free Spain just wanted the war to be over. Franco had won, or was about to, so it was time to get back to normal. Those who resisted Franco at this point mostly did so because it seemed to be better to die fighting than by a firing squad, and those were their only two choices. But if the people wanted peace, so did the foreign governments. On February 27, 1939, London and Paris recognized Franco's nationalist government, currently stationed in Burgos, between Madrid and the northern coast. Marshal Philippe Pétain was made the French ambassador to this new Spain. In return, Franco's man offered his letters of accreditation to French President Lebrun. With this being done, Paris handed over to Franco all the Republican arms, material, and gold deposits being held. Chamberlain, for his part, told the House of Commons that Franco promised there would be no political reprisals. But he knew this was not true. For London and Paris had their own problems, so needed Spain cleaned up post-haste. The United States as well recalled its ambassador to the Spanish Republic, so as to start over with Franco. This was when President Azania informed Negrin of his resignation. Technically, Diego Martinez Barrio, the leader of the Cortes, was supposed to take on the role of acting president until he could organize an election for a new one. Martinez Barrio wrote to Negrin and told him he would come to Madrid and organize things, but that Negrin needed to start peace talks with Franco. For the second time, Negrin did not send back a response. That was it for most of what remained of the Cortes and General Rojo. They would not return to Spain. Back in what remained of Republican-controlled Spain, Negrin called those military leaders who were still with him and Admiral Buisa, commander of the Republican fleet. The Prime Minister gave a stirring speech that implored the men to fight on, but that he was seeking a peace with Franco, which he wasn't. He then fully left reality behind by telling his men that, in a short time, France would be releasing the held-up guns to him, and that, as war was coming to Europe, very soon they would have allies. The generals were not convinced or impressed by this. 
Admiral Buiza said that unless he received pay for his men and supplies right now, then the fleet would have to leave Spanish waters, as it was currently unable to fight. Then General Miaha stated, but probably just to have something to say, that he would fight on. The government and people of central Spain had been cut out of Negrin's inner circle for some time now. As such, none of them had trust in him to look after their best interests, which led to a diverse group of officers, liberal Republicans, and anarchists to come together to figure out their own solution. First off, they knew that Negrin was close to the communists, so they would probably be taking away their own and their allies, as they controlled most of the shipping of free Spain. This had to include the Prime Minister and his loyal followers, of which few were in Madrid. The Communists had been hard on the non-Communists over the years, so there was no love lost between the two general groups. So when the Communists left, they would go alone, and Franco would want to wage a bloody revenge on whomever was still around. But here was the problem. While General Cipriano Mera controlled the forces of Guadalajara, just north of Madrid, the three other corps were under the command of communist officers. None of them could simply pull back, or the entire northern front would collapse. And it didn't help that when Negrin went to the front at the end of February, Colonel Casado, in charge of the northern section, told Negrin, what he thought exactly of the politicians who told the soldiers to fight on, even though they had nothing to fight with, while those same politicians went around taking things to sell after they abandoned Spain. And this mad game continued on, with Franco as the clear winner and thereby judge, jury, and executioner. The officers of Republican Spain sent out feelers to nationalist agents, thinking they could get better surrender terms than Negrin and his communist supporters. Word of this got back to Franco, who played along, anything to get the center army to surrender. Colonel Casado, commander of the center army, met with a nationalist spy to seek terms, and then met with a British diplomat, who promised to try to get Franco to lessen his desire for revenge. Franco's terms were vague and ended with a threat. The surrender must be unconditional, but those men tricked into fighting would be pardoned if they laid down their arms now and worked hard for the new nationalist government. Word of this got back to Negrin on March 2nd, yet he did nothing to stymie it, as it would not be his signature on the surrendering document. But Negrin did react to this news in a self-serving way. The next day, March 3rd, Negrin announced a whole slew of promotions and transfers. In its entirety, the communists would be moved to the southeast coast, and the non-communists would still be facing Franco's troops. Of course, those who would still be around Madrid guessed that Negrin and his communist advisors were about to make their getaway. Even worse, Franco read this news differently, that the communists were gathering their forces as to renew the offensive. Still, Negrin was the prime minister, so the units began to move around. 
which led to rebellions, but ones that conflicted with each other, not the nationalists. One rebellion along the coast at Los Dorales, near Alicante, saw two burgeoning conflicts, one led by Republicans who wanted peace, and the other led by nationalist sympathizers who wanted the same thing, but both were trying to take control of the town. As Admiral Buesa had his fleet stationed there, he knew this would attract the attention of the Nationalist Air Force, worse, probably the Germans and Italians. So he ordered his fleet to make for the open sea. True enough, the Condor Legion was on its way, with orders to track the fleet. This was on March 6th. The next day, Negrin had his communist troops retake the city, which they did, and it was fortuitous, as they just happened to take the coastal batteries as two nationalist ships, loaded with men, were coming in to take advantage of the confusion. But that's when Negrin's communists opened up on the two vessels. The Castillo de Olite, not aware of the change, was shot at close range and quickly went down with 1,223 men. Another 700 who survived were taken prisoner. Negrin contacted the admiral and told him it was safe to return, but the ships did not turn around. Instead, they made for Bizeta, and the crews gave themselves up to French internment. But this did them no good, as they would eventually be turned over to Franco, the country's new leader. By now, the wheels were truly coming off of what was left of Free Spain. On the evening of March 5th, Colonel Casado announced his own government, the National Council of Defense. Again, he had no intention of continuing the fight against Franco, but believed it was better to negotiate without Negrin and the communists. His opening plea would be, some of us were never with the communists. But as Franco kept sending out the message that he was the one trying to save Spain from the Red Menace, he could not have others trying to be the hero of his story. Of course, when Negrin heard of this, he called Casado and told him he was relieved of all duties, but the colonel ignored the prime minister. Further, Casado had his own military representative in Negrin's Alicante arrest the communist governor there. This combined with the leading of his fleet, Negrin told his closest advisor, I, in any case, am off. On March 6th, at two in the afternoon, Negrin and his closest supporters flew to Toulouse. He told those still around him that there would be a meeting of ministers in Paris on March 15th. But on that day, the news that dominated Europe was German troops were entering Czechoslovakia. The Spanish Communist Party then asked Lister and Modesto, would it be possible to use communist troops to arrest Cansado? But they said no. What the communists had to do now was to get ready for the future by establishing underground networks to harass Franco's government. Meanwhile, Cansado got down to work. His government reached out to Franco asking for conditions of surrender. But this was mostly to buy time as Republican forces retreated to the Mediterranean. Casaldo also got word to Franco that Negrin's latest decisions and decrees were illegal. 
The National Council of Defense then went on to shut down the communists in and around Madrid, including its major newspaper, Mundo Albero. General Miaja used his troops to attack or arrest communist troops and officers within reach. Those communists that could fled, yet some stayed and set up their own government. The first thing they did was arrest Castado's staff and execute them. This started a side war within Madrid between the Spanish left and the Spanish communists. But as the left had more men, had the sympathy of the people on their side, and the practical advantage of controlling the telephone lines, the fighting ended on March 12th. More communists were rounded up. Some, their leaders, were shot. Casado got back to dealing with Franco by asking that no reprisals were to be undertaken against civilians or soldiers, and that 25 days was to be granted to anyone who wanted to leave Spain. Franco's reply promised nothing, but he didn't have to. He'd won. On March 21st, Franco sent word to Casado that the Republican Air Force would surrender on the 25th. Casado agreed, but bad weather made this impossible. Casado tried to explain, but Franco's agents were ordered to rebuff them. The next day, March 26th, Franco's troops advanced on all fronts. There was little to no resistance as nationalist troops moved in and on Madrid and Republican-held territory to the southeast. Some men piled up their guns and were herded away. Others simply threw them down and made for home. Normalcy was the order of the day. As the National Council for Defense had nothing to achieve, it disintegrated. Casaldo went to Valencia to organize that area's surrender next. This was set for 11 a.m. on March 29th. As Franco soldiers marched into port cities and other areas held by the enemy, a mass exodus was underway. However, ship captains, afraid of being caught themselves, left, many without taking on any passengers. Casaldo managed to board a British cruiser. As the Italians helped gather up prisoners, they witnessed many killing themselves rather than being turned over to Franco. The rest were gathered in prisons, bullrings, and temporary settlements. The first of Franco's men entered Madrid on March 28th. After them came more soldiers, but also trucks full of food. Police were sent in to stop any fifth columnists from revenge killing. Now that Madrid was his, Franco wanted it calm. However, other troops were sent in, mostly phalangists, to get on with punishing those who resisted the coup of 1936. The priests then came in to bless everyone. Pope Pius XII sent a message to Franco. We give sincere thanks with your excellency for the victory of Catholic Spain. On April 20th, 1939, the Non-Intervention Committee, based in London, dissolved itself. Soon, Franco would issue the repressive laws that insisted upon revenge. For everything that had happened in the Red Zone since July 18th of 1936 until the liberation.
by most accounts, some 200,000 people were executed. Those that were found guilty but survived lived out their years in one of Franco's 500 prisons. When Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, Franco decreed that all Spanish subjects were to be neutral in this conflict. Then the Generalissimo sent a message to Hitler that he was ready to join the war, but his price would be steep. Morocco, Iran, the Sahara, as far as the 20th parallel, and the coastal zone of Guinea, as far as the Niger Delta. This was too much for Berlin, and in the end, no deal would be worked out, which saved Franco-Spain when the Axis fell in 1945. With no Germany or Italy to back him up, in July of 45, Franco issued the decree on the rights of the Spaniards. He did not want to go the way of Mussolini. This gave a general pardon for the political prisoners from the Civil War. Furthermore, he altered his government to bring in more Catholic priests. In April of 1948, Franco ended the state of war in Spain. But it would be the Cold War that would save him, as the West needed every ally they could get. Francisco Franco was the dictator of Spain until his death on November 20, 1975. His chosen heir was Prince Juan Carlos de Bourbon, son of Don Juan, the Count of Barcelona, who believed he was next in line. But the general believed that the father was too liberal. In 1973, Franco surrendered the function of prime minister to Juan Carlos and only retained the position of head of state and commander-in-chief of the military. Back in 1969, Franco was given the right to name his own successor, and with his selection of Juan Carlos, he, Juan, became the Prince of Spain. But after Franco's death, the Cortes Generales made him Juan Carlos King of Spain. Right away, Juan Carlos I began a series of reforms, backpedaling from Franco's more austere ways. Then he replaced the country's prime minister with a man more liberal than Franco would ever have approved of. In June of 1977, Juan Carlos oversaw the country's first post-Franco democratic elections which brought about a new constitution. Spain's second election in 1982 saw the overwhelming victory of the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party. In all practical ways, Juan Carlos was no longer the active leader of Spain's government. All right. So hello, everybody. So uh, just my way of thanking you guys for uh, supporting me with your membership. I really do appreciate it. We're going to do another Harry's giveaway. So what I did was I took the names of all the people who have entered before, gathered them up. And so me and my daughters are going to uh, do another drawing. If you hear noise in the background, that's my producer. He's a border collie. Uh, by the name of Finn, not very helpful, but he makes up for that with the energy and chewing up and, and quite frankly, peeing in the house. So anyway, okay, so each, uh, myself and the girls are going to draw a name that'll give us a three finalists and then we'll pick the winner from there. So Sophie's whispering something. They need, you have to say it loud. Okay, so who wants to pick a name first? 
I'll pick a name first. Okay, so la 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 la. I'm not looking. I'm turning them all up. So the first person is David Ryland, uh, who I got to meet in Australia. That was pretty cool, David. It was finally great to meet you. So, and again, that that was I was not cheating. I just reached in there and randomly grabbed a name. Who's next? Okay, so who's next? So Kiki has picked. Rich Lewis. So Rich Lewis is in the name Sophie's turn. Sophie, don't look in the bowl. Just turn your there you go. Turn your eyes away. Mix it up. Okay. So Sophie has picked Alex Atterbury. So finally Alex is in the, the running. He's entered every single contest. So good luck, Alex. I'm sure this is the one for you. Okay, so we're gonna dump all those out. Bye-bye. And um, mix them all up. This so are we yes. Just gonna pick the winner, or are we gonna do it again? And then no, this is this is to determine the winner. Okay, so. No. Okay, so I'll do it so it'd be fair because they both want to pick the winner. So I'm not looking. I'm not looking. Oh, Sophie's got her. Now I can't find the bowl because Sophie's covering up my eyes. I randomly grabbed one, and the winner is David Ryland. So congratulations, David. I'll be contacting. Yeah! Yes, the bicycle enthusiast who's going to outlive me. Yeah, that's very loud. So I'll be sending him Alex. Sorry again, dude. But anyway, there'll there'll be more in the future, I promise. And David, I'll be I'll be uh, emailing you soon to get your details. Thank you for everybody uh, for uh, supporting the show and listening. Um, if there's ever a subject you want me to cover in the future on the membership episodes, you let me know. <laughs> Sophie wanted to burp her contribution into this conversation. <laughs> Okay, and she wanted to say hi. Okay, Kiki, is there anything you want to add? No. Okay, Kiki is being... Bye! Bye. So, Kiki, so, so to sum up, Sophie burped, said hi, and then said goodbye. Take care, everyone. Bye!